Really glad you're here today. We're in a series that we're calling The Elephant in the Room. If you weren't here for the first message, in the very first message, we talked about how Jesus taught us that money is more than just a neutral medium of exchange. That literally he gave it a name, a personal name of Mammon, which was the name of the Syrian god of riches. He wanted us to know that there's a spiritual reality behind money. And when we're oblivious to that fact, it has even more power over us. Last week, Josh talked to us about money wounds, about being scripted in scarcity, about some of the things that happen even in our growing up and our early experiences with money that wound us, cause us to look at money and experience money in a different way. Today, I want to talk to you about unquestioned assumptions. And I want to begin with an article that grabbed my attention. The headline was this, 11 Days from Financial Ruin. It was stark. It was sobering and honestly, a little scary. Now, it was written about people in the UK but what's happening in the UK is not all that different from what's happening right here among us. Stagnant wages, increasingly volatile markets, little savings, struggling with too much debt. Does that sound familiar? Basically what the article said is a third of all adults could not survive financially if in 11, after 11 days after a job loss or an illness, after 11 days their financial world would implode. Do you know that one in four Americans has no emergency fund whatsoever? Which means if some kind of emergency were to happen, they had to have a repair, they had to fix their car, they had to go to the doctor, they would have to go, get, go to a relative for money, they would go to a payday loan center, or they would sell something to generate that money. I came across this by Katie Hill. She's the editor of Market Watch. She made this comment. She said, regardless of the economic climate, money and finances have remained the top stressor since our survey began in 2007. More than half of all Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. So as I say that, I know that we're not an exception to being like other people. I imagine that's true for us too, that half of the people in this room are living from paycheck to paycheck. Carrie Paul noted this, 44% of people said their expenses exceeded their income in the past year and they used credit to make the end, their ends meet. Another 42% said they have no retirement savings at all. Now, what that tells me is a lot of people are living beyond their means and they have no safety net whatsoever. Living with that kind of financial stress is hard enough on us, but it also takes a toll on the best of relationships. Disagreements around finances are one of the top reasons for divorce. And get this, couples who disagree at least once a week about finances, about money, are 30% more likely to get divorced than those who argue less frequently. According to Time Magazine survey, the number one source of arguments in marriage is conflict over money. Has anything I've just said to you been startling? Has, has, does any of it take you by surprise? Does any of it cause you to think, wow, I never knew it was that bad, or you, maybe you're living that reality right now and it just doesn't surprise you at all. There's a reason we're calling this series The Elephant in the Room, because these problems are huge. They're affecting vast numbers of our neighbors and our friends and our family and sometimes even us. But as our marriages crumble and we live with unreal levels of stress unlike any other time in our life, sometimes we're as sick as the alcoholic who says, I don't have a problem, I can quit whenever I want. I'm here to tell you we simply cannot leave these conversations in the dark. We need to bring these issues into the light where they're acknowledged, confronted, and resolved. Which brings me to the first point. We have to question the narrative. 
You see, we're living in a world that, that really lies to us and distorts the truth quite a bit around money because its main objective is to keep us in debt and keep us consuming. For the vast majority of Americans, the number one way we're getting into trouble financially is in the area of borrowing money. And the top three areas where we're going to get into trouble are credit cards, buying vehicles, and buying homes. And we're going to talk about each of those things this morning, but before we do, I want to introduce you to one indisputable fact about credit borrowing. And this applies whether you're talking about Visa or payday lending or Ford Motor Credit or Wells Fargo Mortgage. And this is what the Bible says. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. When you owe money, no matter the amount, the terms, or the interest, the lender's in charge. They dictate the minimum payment and the due date. They make the profit, you take the loss. To one degree or another, any time you take out a loan on credit, you become a slave. Because a certain part of your day has to be worked to earn money to, in order to pay that debt, to meet that responsibility, that legal obligation you have. So in light of that, debt should always be taken on cautiously, only when necessary, but with a full awareness of what we're signing up for. With that said, let me talk to you about one of the biggest ways we get in trouble financially, and that is buying on credit. Josh said he didn't mind if I used his credit card this morning because <laughs> this is a church and no one would dare copy that number down and go on an Amazon shopping spree. So I said, let's test that hypothesis. No, I'm kidding. That, that's not his card. Uh, one of the most powerful observations I've ever heard about economy came from the late Henry Nouwen. He said this, consumeristic economies stay afloat by manipulating the low self-esteem of their consumers. What he's saying is, as long as I'm kept small, as long as I'm led to believe that something is missing or somehow I'm missing out on something I truly need, then I can be manipulated into buying stuff that will fill that void. And let's face it, we're bombarded by these messages all the time. It's on the radio, it's on the television, it's on your drive to work, it's every billboard, it's every car that's plastered with advertising. Even Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you notice that every other image is a sales ad, right? I mean, they're there. And increasingly, and I remember reading this like 25 years ago, they said the future belongs to those who can tailor the advertising to the consumer. Well, now guess what? All the advertising that shows up on our electronic media is based on our unique search history. So they're paying attention to what you need, what you desire, what you're searching for, and someone is going to exploit your needs. That's the bait in the trap. I'm going to exploit your weeds in such, needs in such a way that I get you working for me because the borrower is servant to the lender. I'm going to get you in debt, show you this is what you've been looking for all along so that you buy it and then you're indebted to me. Now to facilitate that trap, we're told, why wait? Especially when you can have it right now for $50 a month instead of having to fork over the whole $1,000 right up front. We want to experience the good life on the installment plan. And what that does is it calls people to fall for what debt counselors call the minimum payment syndrome. What that means is most of us no longer think in terms of the entire debt. We think, I can handle another 20 bucks a month, so we keep on charging. And this is how we get stuck on that paycheck to paycheck treadmill. This is why we pay and we pay and we never get out from under that debt. Now, another thing that's particularly dangerous about credit buying is that it creates a buffer zone between us and our actual money. And believe it or not, there are more and more ways today that the way we pay for things is becoming increasingly abstract and divorced from the dollars that we hold in our bank accounts. 
I mean, credit cards are the primary way, but there's Apple and there's Android Pay. There's PayPal. There's Google Pay. There's all these ways of conveniently paying for things online. And here's the problem with that. What scientists who study consumer behavior call this, they call it the pain of payment. That, that when you actually pay for things with cash, you're very aware of how much you're spending. In fact, there are debt counselors that tell people who have a problem with buying too much on credit card to convert their entire paycheck into $1 bills and to pay for everything with actual currency. So you're in Target, and the person behind you is going to hate you for this, okay? But I'm telling you, when you start paying for everything with actual dollars, you'll become very aware of what you're spending and whether or not you need to be spending that. So plopping down plastic doesn't have that pain. It's easy. PayPal, it's easy. Apple Pay, it's easy. We don't feel the pain. In fact, we don't even have to look at the total anymore, do we? We just sign on the dotted line and everything's okay. That's why credit buying consistently leads to overspending, and that's a proven fact. We no longer have the pain of payment, which, which what I'm saying is this. Credit cards separate the pleasure of buying from the pain of paying, and that's our challenge is to reunite those things. So let's take a minute and look at how we're doing as a nation when it comes to credit. This is credit household debt as far as the U.S. concerned. Number one, according to the Federal Reserve, 43.9% of families hold credit card debt right now. Experian, which is one of the credit monitoring companies, said the average credit card balance in America by the end of 2018 was $6,040. According to the CFPB, most U.S. consumers carry a balance on at least one of their credit cards and Camillo Maldano recently said 50% of Americans have maxed out their credit cards. Now, these are troubling statistics, and I'll tell you why. If you have the average amount on a credit card, $6,000, according to Experian, just last year. If you have $6,000 on a credit card, and you're making the typical minimum payment, which is 2%, and, 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 and you're not putting anything else on that card, and that's a big if, isn't it? Okay, so you got $6,000 on the card. You're making the minimum payment. you know how long it'll take you to pay that off? 30 plus years. You know how much you'll spend in interest? Over $18,000 in interest alone on that $6,000 you charged. Which brings the total after 30 years to $24,499. It's why Dr. Tony Evans said this. Financially speaking, there's three kinds of people. The haves, the have-nots, and those who've not paid for what they have. But there's one more thing about credit card spending I need to mention in light of this series. We lie. We lie about our true financial behavior, especially around credit cards. Listen to this. This is according to Bankrate. They did a financial literacy survey. They found that 58 respondents claimed to pay off their credit cards in full every month. A marked contrast to studies that show the numbers actually closely to 40%. So why? Why lie? Why lie about this financial reality. I'll tell you why we lie. Because it's the elephant in the room. It's our unacknowledged reality. The thing that's causing so many problems. It's wreaking havoc. It's robbing us of our peace of mind. It's destroying our most precious relationships. And we don't tell the truth to others. And we often don't tell the truth to ourselves about our financial behavior. Like the alcoholic, some are creditholics. And, and I mean this not facetiously. Because there are many ways that credit cards are like drugs, and not the least of which is they offer short-term pleasure and long-term pain. And that's the definition of a drug. But there's another way people are getting into trouble financially. It's all the way we go about buying a car. This past year, 
the all-time, we set an all-time record, the highest number in terms of an average, the new car price is $30,000. And if you buy a new car at $30,000, that kicks your payment well above $500 a month. Now, here's the deal. The way we typically buy a car is one of the single biggest waste of money we make. And much of this waste comes back to whether we buy new or used. So let me be frank. A used car saves you a lot of money. On average, a used car price is half of what a new car is priced, which means you can pay off the car faster and use a lot less money because we're not talking about payments. We're talking about the total you owe. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the average consumer switches cards every six years, and it doesn't matter if they bought it new or used. We typically trade out a car after six years. So the main benefit of used cars is this. The bulk of the depreciation has already happened. You realize, don't you, if you go into a showroom, you buy a brand new $30,000 car, you drive it off the lot and into your home driveway, on the drive home, it depreciated by 11%. That's, that's the way it works. So that car that you paid $30,000 for is now worth $26,700. Just because you drove it home. At the end of the first year, mileage and wear and tear, it's not uncommon for the total of depreciation to be $9,000, around 30%. So in the first year alone on a brand new car, you lose about a third of its value. Then after three years, a $30,000 car is typically worth around $15,000. That means that that car, owning it three years, cost you $15,000, which is why when you get a new car payment, many times you can't even sell that car till you nearly have it paid off because it's just not worth what you still owe. But let's say, for example, that you were to buy that same car, but you waited three years. You let it depreciate to $15,000. Three years later, you could probably sell that car for $10,000. You know why? Because the bulk of the depreciation all occurs in the first three years. It's much slower after that. So if you sold it three years later for $10,000 in depreciation, it's only cost you five. Now, when you consider the average person will own 13 cars in their lifetime, isn't that amazing? There are many places in the world where people dream of even owning one car and they'll never own it. We, as Americans, average 13. If you just bought used instead of new, you realize you'd save $130,000 over your lifetime. There's a lot of other things I'd like to do with that money than just give it away in terms of depreciation. Now, it used to be said that buying used cars, and some of you are thinking this right now, is buying someone else's problems. Have you ever heard that? And you know who says that? New car salespeople. That's, that's, who's, <laughs> that's who says that. <laughs> Generally speaking, that's not true anymore. Now, it, it's obvious anybody can buy a clunker. We can all get a clunker. You need to get cars checked out by your mechanic or get a pre-certified car. But cars have never been more dependable. It's not uncommon for cars that are being built today to go for 100,000 miles before they e need any kind of major repair. Of course, we all know every vehicle needs oil changes and brake jobs and tire rotations. But you can drive cars farther now between scheduled maintenance and ever before. Even brakes and tires last longer. So one of the questions we ask ourselves is, what is the realistic life of a vehicle? Well, there's nothing more grueling on an automobile than working as a taxi in New York City. And according to the Taxi Cab Factbook, the average taxi in New York drives 70,000 miles per year. And the average age of a taxi is 3.3 years which tells you, luck of the draw, no matter what taxi you're getting in, it typically has 230,000 miles on it. In addition, most New York City taxis last for six years, so it's not uncommon for them to rack up between 400 and 500,000 miles. 
In fact, I, I used, when they were all Crown Vicks, now the, it's typically the Ford Escape Hybrid that's the most common taxi in New York. When they were the Crown Vicks, they would go 600,000 miles before they get rid of them. And I can say this with great assurance, never buy a used taxi in New York City, okay? I can <laughs> just tell you that right up front. That's as smart as eating staples, okay? You don't want to do that. These vehicles have had a hard life. New York's roads are some of the worst in the U.S., maybe even in the world. Taxis carry a whole lot of people. So it's a hard life on these automobiles. But my point is, if you keep up the regular maintenance, vehicles will last much longer than you think they will. And by the way, most number crunchers agree the least expensive car is the one you own right now. I'll never forget, Al Collier, he was uh, one of my board members' father. He did a financial workshop like in the second year of our church. So this was 27 years ago. And he made a comment I'll never forget. He said, Pastor Keith, everybody drives a used car. And I never thought about that, but it's true. Because the moment you drive it off a lot, it's a used car. Try to sell it for new. It's not going to happen. It's a used car. So we all drive a used car. It's just a matter of degree. So here's what I discovered. I was doing some uh, Amazon searching, and I found this. And I'm going to suggest that you buy these little trees. You get six of them for $6.81. If you want a new tree every month so your car keeps smelling like a new car, that's $14 a year for your used car that's three years old versus paying a premium price for a new car smell, which will cost you $9,000. So, so 14 versus 9,000, you can make that call on your own. Also, never be in a hurry to buy a car and never let a salesperson pressure you to buy. I tell myself all the time, if I found this deal one time, I can find it again. And I do, I wait. When I bought the car I drive right now, it's a 2011 Camry. I bought it in 2016, so it was five years old. I was looking for a car that the bulk of depreciation had already occurred. And so I started looking around. I knew what kind of car I wanted. They're dependable, they're reliable, good gas mileage, they're a roomier car. I thought, well, this will be perfect for me. And I took about a month just searching, and I found the car I wanted. It was down in Austin, Texas. CarMax had it. It had 16,000 miles on it. It was five years old. You know, 16,000 miles, believe it or not, Low mileage doesn't really significantly increase the cost. It's not a great value. It's not a big add-on in terms of cost for a vehicle. But it's a real value to me. Because that's like a one-and-a-half-year-old car in terms of the average amount of people drive. So I bought this car. And it's a great car. And I got it for a great price because it was always fully depreciated. It's still, after me driving it for now, what, four years? It's still got lower mileage than most Camrys of this year. And I drive it a lot. But the best part, it came pre-dinged. Which means I never have to worry in a parking lot about who's going to throw open a door and put a dent in it. It already had dents, you know. And when you buy a new car, you got to park far away from everybody. you got to walk the greatest distance in because you're worried somebody's going to hit your car. Those worries were gone for me the moment I bought the car, you know. So it's, it's a great deal. So that's one mistake we make. The way we buy cars, we really spend way too much money on new cars because they depreciate so fast. Here's a second area or actually a third area now, is, is buying a house. Have you ever heard the term expectation inflation? Expectation inflation is this idea that a, a system that says we need more than we actually need. And one of the biggest indicators of expectation inflation is just how much the square footage of our homes have grown over the last two generations. Juliet Shore, back in the 90s, wrote a book called The Overworked American. She made this observation. In 1950, the average new home was 750 square feet for an average family of four. You remember these houses? These were built right after the war. 
And they were small houses that the GIs could afford coming home. They'd have a family of four in 750 square feet. By 1989, the average new house was 2,000 square feet for an average family of 2.6 persons, which means now the average person has as much space as an entire family had in 1950. Now, in 2010, in 2010, that number rose to 2,169. As of last year, you know what the average square footage in a brand new home in America is? 2,641 square feet. Houses are getting ridiculously large. So think about this. If you lived in a house that wasted less space, maybe our mortgage, insurance, taxes, heating, and cooling wouldn't cost us near as much money. Maybe it wouldn't take two wage earners to make ends meet. And maybe we could do more of what we wanted to do. And I'm just telling you this from experience. There was a time I bought into the lie that you should buy as much house as you could possibly afford. And I bought a house out in the Greens on a corner lot. Former Target manager, the, the company bought it to let him move someplace else in the country. And so it was a steal compared to the neighborhood. And I thought, well, I'm getting a great house for a great deal. It was 3,600 square feet. It, it had a pool. It was nice. I mean, I, I, it was a great house. But the first Texas summer, my first cooling bill was as large as my previous mortgage payment. I lived in that house for two years. I was miserable the whole time because I was house rich and cash poor. And then I realized I'm in charge of my own peace of mind. And this house is not giving me peace of mind. And I sold it. Happiest day of my life. I sold that house. I moved into a house smaller than the very first house we ever owned. But you know what it did? It created margin in my life. It, it created this space where that I, I didn't have to worry when the electric bill came in whether or not I could afford it. You know, honestly, since living in Texas, Brenda and I have had, so we've lived here 33 years. This January will be 34. Since moving to Texas, I've had five huge financial setbacks, and all of them were related to medical insurance. One time, my daughter, I had to put my daughter in the hospital, and my insurance company denied the entire claim. And I went to the hospital, and they showed me the paperwork and gave me the paperwork where every day, they were calling my insurance company and getting the approval for that day's medical expenses. They showed where they called, they showed who they talked to, and they showed where they got the approval. When they got done, they said, we're not going to honor this. So I got all the documentation. I thought, oh, I got them dead to rights because they had already agreed to it. Well, guess what? It didn't matter. And so my wife and I had to go out and borrow something like $20,000 in order to pay that debt because they were going to come after us for it. It's crazy. And had I still been in the big house when that happened? It would have killed us financially. It would have. I, I had no room to do anything like that. Which leads me to this next important principle, to live beneath your means. You know, I just read an article this past week that said, live within your means. And i got to tell you, that's not really good advice because the better advice is to live beneath them because if you spend less than you could, you'll really regret it. You want to keep your basic living expenses low. And the three big living expenses for almost everybody in this room our housing, transportation, and food. Those are our big expenses. And if one of them gets out of line, when you have high basic living expenses, everything follows suit. Utilities, maintenance, upkeep, I mean, all of that. So the most basic component of a financial plan is to live beneath your means. That way, you always have money left over for spending, emergencies, investing, and giving. 
Now, one of the most basic living expenses that we all have, that we want to keep low, it, you know, it, it is, is because you can lose your job. You can get sick. Uh, you need this margin. So here's the deal. You always need more than what you need. And there's a great Bible story that illustrates this. It's a really familiar story. One of the most important principles in this story most people miss and skip over. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. You know this story. Stories about a boy that runs away. I've heard this story preached a hundred times, and almost every preacher says the same thing. When the kid hit rock bottom, when he was in the pigsty, that's when he decided to go home. And I want to tell you, that's not what the story says. Yeah, he hit rock bottom. He was in a pigsty. But when he was in the pigsty and he hit rock bottom, he said something to himself that was very, very important. You remember what he said? How many of my father's hired men have bread and enough to spare, and I'm perishing with hunger? Have you ever thought about what that means? You need to have a little bit of understanding of the social strata of that day to really get the significance of what he's saying. We have a chart that shows that. So in that day, the wealthiest people, the virtual bankers of the day, were the landowners. They had monopolies on everything because they owned most of the land. Does that make sense? Beneath them were tenant farmers. Now, the tenant farmers didn't own the land. They rented the land from the wealthy landowners. But because they were in the business of agriculture, they tended to not starve because they could grow their own food. Beneath them were craftsmen. So craftsmen were people that had specialized skills like pottery and stonemasons and carpenters and things of that nature. They tended to fare okay. Beneath them were servants or slaves. Now slavery is bad and wrong in any generation. But understand in Jesus' day, a third of the Roman population were slaves. They were servants. And almost all of them were servants because of debt. People were being bankrupted, bankrupted and having to sell their services to other people. But at least as a servant, you were guaranteed a roof over your head and meals every day. The lowest and most vulnerable worker, the very bottom of the strata, was what we call the day laborer or the hired man. This is who the prodigal son was talking about. So a day laborer, you know what a day laborer is. We have a day laborer center over on Saturn Road at the very end. This is where men and women go and they hang out and they hope that somebody will drive by and give them a job that day. A day laborer is the most vulnerable worker of all because they get sick, they don't eat because they can't work. They get injured, they can't work, they don't eat, right? And because they're desperate, they're easy to exploit. Because they're desperate, some people will pay them as little as possible because they know if they don't work today, they're not going to eat. So they're really motivated to work and you can pay them very little. So in light of that, hear what the prodigal son has just said. How many of my father's day laborers have bread and enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? What's he just said about his dad? My dad is a very good man. And how does he know his dad is a good man? Because the most vulnerable of all workers, he doesn't just cover their need, he gives them more than what they need. You realize, don't you, everybody needs a little more than your need. If what you're making right now is only covering the need, then all it takes is one emergency, one financial setback, you get behind, and you'll never get caught up because you're just making enough to cover the need. Everyone needs more than what they need. So the prodigal son doesn't go home when things get bad. He goes home when he remembers his dad is good. This is why the Bible says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the goodness of God that causes us to run back to him. I wouldn't run to God if I didn't believe he was good. So everybody needs a little bit more than what they need. And there is no question that today, in light of the suppressed wages, a lack of social safety nets, major flaws in our medical and health insurance markets, are all contributing to financial problems around the world. It's not just us. We live in a world that exploits us. 
And this is a good reminder on Labor Day weekend. This is a time in our country where we pause and we remember workers, that they matter. And you need to hear from the heart of God. Workers matter to God. Because the father in the prodigal story is God. And he wants to make sure that every worker has more than what they need. But even with that said, there are those who seem to rise above the gross unfairness of this world and the lure of living beyond their means. And we need to learn a lot from those people. And the one in particular is Osceola McCarty. Ms. McCarty dropped out of school when she was eight years old. She spent the rest of her life doing laundry and ironing clothes in her neighborhood. She was known in her community as a washerwoman. And she would have continued to live and die in obscurity if it weren't for what happened on July 26, 1995. On that day, she went to her bank and she told her banker that she wanted to give some of her savings to help underprivileged young people go to college. Ms. McCarty gave $150,000 to the University of Southern Mississippi, a school she'd never seen, to provide scholarships to kids she didn't even know. Ms. McCarty's gift was the single largest gift given to the University of Southern Mississippi by an African-American. People who knew Ms. McCarty were blown away by this news. She'd done the laundry for three generations of family in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. When word got out about her gift, a media frenzy followed. She appeared on the front page of the New York Times. She was on the cover of Guidepost, cover of People, Life Magazine, considered her one of the most prominent people of 1995. The White House invited her to come and have uh, dinner. And not just that, Harvard gave her an honorary doctorate. And for me, I think it was well-deserved. Because this 91-year-old elementary school dropout was able to do what some of the smartest, most educated people in the world have not been able to do. She tamed the power of money and the lure to spend everything she made. She worked steadily, she budgeted carefully, she saved consistently, she invested wisely, and she gave generously. She did with her money what the federal government can't do with our tax dollars, what Wall Street can't seem to do with our investment, and what most families in America who make far more than Ms. McCarty can't seem to be able to do with their own paycheck. This is a very wise woman. This photo of Ms. McCarty is one of her favorites. It's Ms. McCarty clutching her Bible to her chest. You see what made Ms. McCarty be the person that she is, is she's one of God's kids. She's a woman of faith. She saved over a quarter of a million dollars in her lifetime. She gave $150,000 to a school she never visited, gave a tithe to her church, and gave the balance to some nieces and nephews. And she created that vast fortune with two and five dollar deposits. Listen to her testimony. I know God will take care of me. I know because I've tried it and it works. And that leads to this final principle, prepare for the unexpected. You know, the one certainty of life is its uncertainty. The fact is we don't know what this day holds, but we often presume upon the future. And anytime we buy on credit, we're presuming on the future. But what if you lost your job? What if you had an injury or a medical problem? You couldn't work for a few weeks. If you're married, something happened to your spouse. The Bible reminds us of this fact. The wise save for the future, the foolish spend whatever they get. So what this verse does is it teaches us to anticipate hard times. One of our board members, Jim Junta, told me years ago, because I was having these problems of overspending on my credit card, he said, the most important thing I can tell you is establish an emergency fund right now between two and $3,000 and always keep that fund full. Because if you don't establish that first, even before you pay off debt, every time there's a problem, you're going to run back to your cards. So establish that emergency fund. When it's depleted or you begin to spend down, make sure it stays up. 
And that's the single best piece of financial advice I ever got in my life. Because I have religiously, since 27 years ago when he told me that, I've kept an emergency fund. And it's kept me from running to my cards. So we can't keep life storms from raining on us. Some storms are inevitable and unavoidable. But the time to build a storm shelter is before the storm, not in the midst of it. So I have a couple of things I want to share with you. These are the kind of problems we can't take on alone. You need help. You know, a study was done and found that Christians of all people are the least likely to talk about their finances with other people. And that's sad. We need help. You're not going to do this on the own. If you could have fixed this on your own, you would have fixed it by now. So that you're not fixing it, you're not dealing with it, you need help. So we got a class, it's free, it's coming up next Saturday. It's going to be from 9 to 11 a.m., totally free. You just need to go register online. Go to our springcreekchurch.org page, go to the events, scroll down, you'll find that class. Sign up for free on Saturday from 9 to 11. We'll talk about the financial basics, debt relief, savings, and even home ownership. We also have a course. And this course is called Financial Peace University. This is a really comp comprehensive class. It'll help you deal with your own individual situation. It does cost $99 to be a part of it. We're not making money off of that. This is to pay for the materials and the things we need for this class. If you want to go and you find that that's too much for you, there are some scholarships available. We need to know you want to go. Again, you need to qualify for that class. And that's not going to be a single class. That's going to be multiple classes because it's a comprehensive answer to help set you financially free. The final thing I want to share, and then we're done. You know, there's a reason that in the Bible, again and again, our sin situation is compared to debt, that, that we owe a debt. There was a little song we used to sing in college. My, it was a chorus, you know, what became the new worship songs. But it, it said, I owed a debt I could not pay. Christ paid a debt he did not owe. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, the whole day long. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. That's exactly what Paul is writing in the book of Colossians. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses, all of our debts, by canceling the record of debts that stood against us with his legal demands, he, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I am so glad that my sin debt, my unpayable sin debt, was paid in full by Jesus Christ. In fact, his final words on the cross are often translated, it is finished. But in the Greek, the word, the one word he uses is tetelestai. This word does not mean it is finished. It means paid in full. Paid in full. When he died on the cross and he breathed his last, he said, your sin debt is paid. You and I know what it's like to hold debt. You and I know what it's like to be forgiven of a great debt because that's what Jesus did. And I'm going to tell you, that's a bigger problem than your financial problems. And if God can handle that problem, he can help you with your finance problems too. And I'm just praying that today, if you don't know him, that you'll accept that wonderful free payment that he did on the cross so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be free, so that you wouldn't have this debt hanging over you, causing you to worry and consume so much of your life of guilt and regret and shame and all the things that we carry when our sin debt is still in our heart. Christ does not want you to carry that. He, he died to forgive you of that, to set you free. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your wonderful truth. Thank you, God, that you value 
work and workers and wages. God, thank you that you have given us a path in your word. And there's common sense that, Lord, we need to be anticipating the future. We need to be very aware that we can be spending and presuming upon the future. I pray right now in this place, if someone doesn't know you, that they would reach out with a hand of faith and say, Jesus, I want you in my life. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose again. I believe that you paid my penalty in full so that I could be forgiven and free. So I ask Christ to come into my life. I want to live for you and I want to love you for the rest of my life. And for anybody here who's under the weight of debt, and maybe it's just causing a lot of sleepless nights or maybe it's even causing problem in their most cherished relationships in their family right now, I pray that today they would be filled with hope to know that in this room there are people who understand, people who've been there, People who understand that we're in a system that constantly encourages this level of irresponsible living. But there is a path. There is a way forward. There is a path toward financial freedom. And I pray that somebody would make a decision today. No more hiding. No more pretending. No more lying about my financial reality. I want to know what it means to be free. I want to live that way. In Jesus' name, amen.